0: Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. Hey guys, thanks for tuning back in to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. On this episode, you're gonna hear Dr. Ashley Bassett of the Orthopedic Institute of New Jersey explain to us what the ALL is. It's the anterolateral ligament, but we're gonna dive into why it's important, especially how it affects uh, ACL retail rates and ACL reconstructions. Uh, we're also gonna talk about LETs, um, and so that's the, the lateral extra articular tenodesis, usually with the ITB. Um, it is the latest and greatest. You've heard me talk about it um, on different ACL podcasts. Uh, obviously, we have our own ACL course coming up, the True Sports Physical Therapy Guide to ACL Rehabilitation. And ALL and LETs seem to be like the future of ACL reconstruction. Uh, maybe we'll change our mind on that coming up but dr bassett does a great job of really explaining what transpires in the or both with acl with the all um, and perhaps with the let and then we get into different graph choices and what she likes to see both immediately post-op even prehab um, we dive into and she just does a great job of making things clinically relevant both orthopedically orthopedic surgically as well as um, physical therapy and how it's going to affect your patients and your rehabilitation protocols and processes. And that's what we're about. So, Great conversation forthcoming. Um, can't wait to get some of your guys' feedback. Of course, look out for that new ACL course. We're about to drop it. Um, so as soon as we do, we'll be offering discounts to all of our loyal listeners here. Um, and we're always looking for feedback. So feel free to reach us at True Sports PT on Instagram or shoot me an email, yoni at truesportspt.com. We always want to hear what we could do better or what you absolutely loved about the pod. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Ashley Bassett. Welcome to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. We got Dr. Ashley Bassett with us today. Her background is awesome. I can't wait to hear even a little bit more about her background. Um, I'm interested to see if she mentions Harvard because a lot of people just (laughs) reference it as the school uh, in Boston. Um, But before we get rolling, um, Dr. Bassett, tell us about your background and how you got all the way to where you are today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, so I grew up in New Jersey, where I currently practice now. Um, so I went to medical school in New Jersey. It was originally UMDNJ, Robert Wood Johnson. Now it is Rutgers uh, University uh, Medical School. Um, after medical school, um, I went and, yes, I'll admit, I did my orthopedic residency surgical training at Harvard, um, which was awesome. Um, I trained at Mass General, Brigham, Beth Israel, and Children's. So it was a really well-rounded, really awesome experience. I learned a lot there. Um, and then I did a one-year sports medicine fellowship training at the Rothman Orthopedic Institute in Philadelphia, where I got to work with all my favorite sports teams for a year, which was really awesome. And then I returned to New Jersey uh, to kind of return to my hometown, where I'm currently practicing now in a private practice called the Orthopedic Institute of New Jersey. And I've been there now for four years. So it's been really great. It's been a great journey.
0: Um, And I've gotten to know you a little bit more so through the shoulder world, Mm -hmm. but I'm really excited to dive into all things ACL and even more specifically, ALL. Um, as well as getting into some Mm -hmm. of your graph choices and things of that nature. We actually have an ACL course coming up, so we're putting together a ton of ACL content. We're gonna talk about in that course the way we approach ACL rehabilitation and try to maximize our outcomes with our athletes. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what it is that's new in your world with uh, ACL specifically. How would you say your approach to ACLs have changed over the last few years?
1: Yoni I think I lost you there for a second I heard how do you <laughs> <clears throat>
0: mm. Mm. tell me when you got me tell me when you're back tell me when you're back how about now? can you hear me yes I got you
1: oh I can hear you now yeah there you <laughs> go sorry I lost you there for a second <laughs> okay
0: awesome no problem okay so Tell, I, was, I was just telling you, we got this awesome ACL course coming out um, really shortly, The True yeah. Sports Guide to ACL Rehabilitation. Um, and it really highlights a lot mm-hmm. of the nuances and that which has changed in the last few years, um, looking at how to maximize our outcomes. I want to know from you, Doc, what have you learned and really changed with your ACL approach in the last few years?
1: Yeah, so a lot. I, I usually talk about why I love sports medicine so much is because it changes constantly, which is really exciting to me. So um, in terms of, you know, starting with technique, surgical technique. So, I mean, coming out of residency and fellowship, we were all doing independent tunnel drilling, meaning, you know, you drill the femoral tunnel and the tibial tunnel separately. But we were seeing a bit of transtibial, which is kind of the old school way of doing it. So I think doing that different surgical approach. graft choice certainly has changed um, over the years. So I was trained uh, trained primarily in BTB or patellar tendon as well as hamstring tendon. We really, really weren't doing quad tendon at all and now it's a substantial portion of my practice. It's a newer graft, it's showing great outcomes. Um, you can do all soft tissue. You can do it with a bone piece. So that's really exciting. So definitely graph choices come a long way. And then appreciation of the other issues that you need to address at the time of surgery. So um, knowing to, to look for those ramp lesion meniscus tears and those root tear meniscus tears, making sure that you don't miss those. Those can compromise outcomes. Looking for other ligamentous injuries too, really looking on MRI and physical exam to make sure you're not missing a multi ligamentous injury that can lead to you know ACL failure. And then, which we'll get into in a little bit, um, addressing some high-risk patients with the addition of an ALL reconstruction or an LET. So um, that's definitely was not something I saw in residency, um, not even in fellowship. And so that's something really new that I'm really excited to be doing in my high-risk patient population. So it's really come a long way just in like the past five years.
0: That's awesome to hear. You say things have changed and that excites you. I think that makes you an anomaly because I I get a lot of referrals from docs that are doing the same goddamn surgery they've been doing since they got out of school. And so I'm thrilled. And I, I know a lot of the listeners are thrilled to hear that you're constantly changing, um, and, and hopefully evolving, um, just for the betterment of the patient. Um, and that's really cool. I think it takes a, an amount of humility from the provider to say, Hey, I used to do it like this, but I think I found something better.
1: It's also uncomfortable at times. Like, I feel when I pick up a new surgical technique, I'm not as fast. You know, it's a little bit of a struggle at times. You know, you're, and that's, surgeons don't like to feel uncomfortable. We don't, we like having muscle memory and just doing it the same way we've always Mm -hmm. done it, right? There's comfort in in knowing. But I think when data comes out suggesting that there is a better way to do something, we owe it to our patients to change up how we're doing it and go through that period of being uncomfortable to make sure that we're doing the right thing for them.
0: Hell yeah. And, and the patient comes first. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, that gets lost. So you mentioned ALL, which is really what I want to dive into today. Tell us what the hell the ALL is and when you first, when it kind of came to your consciousness that there is this ALL in the knee and that it might make a difference.
1: Yeah, so it's a kind of a funny story. So I remember exactly what I first learned about the ALL, um, not because I was in residency or something educational, but because my sister, who is not in medicine at all, she's a lawyer, um, she sent me a news article that just said, scientists discover new knee ligament. And she sent it to me and she said, do you guys throw parties? When this stuff happens <laughs> <That's a good laughs> and, I was, and i laughed and was like you know we probably should but um yes. i remember reading the article and a lot of my like established attendings were like you know we knew about that it's not new it's always been there but i think what those scientists did is they identified the importance of that ligament and up until that point no one really cared about the anterolateral ligament yeah. or what became the anterolateral complex because who cared but now we know it contributes to rotational stability specifically in the setting of acl injuries and so there's definitely more of a highlight on its importance so you asked what the all is so i think you know, i said anterolateral. what the hell
0: is the all yes
1: <laughs> so i can definitely expand on that okay, so please. so you know the end an- the anterior ligament now we know it's more of a complex so the anterolateral complex is composed of the superficial and deep portions of the iliotibial band, as well as the anterolateral ligament, which is actually a thickening of the anterolateral capsule. So it's encompassed within the capsule. And so I think kind of understanding that, that it's a complex really leads us to understand better the surgical techniques to address it. So there's, we'll get into it a little bit, but there's ALL reconstruction. There's L E T. Why are there so many different surgical techniques? Well, because it's a complex and each of these techniques addresses that complex in a different way with the same goal of restoring that rotational stability to the outside of the
0: knee. Okay. So it lives along the outside. It prevents Mm -hmm. tibia from rotating on femur or femur from rotating on tibia, depending upon that, which is fixed. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And then is it always damaged with an ACL tear?
1: No, that's a really good question. I don't know that we know the true incidence. And I think the problem is it's really difficult to identify on MRI. But you raise a really good point. The mechanism of ACL injury is that plant dynamic knee valgus rotational injury, right? So it's not just injuring the ACL, it's injuring the anterolateral capsule and possibly the you know ALC. Mm-hmm. I think if we if we see like a Sagon fracture, you know, we know it's an avulsion of that maybe iliotibial band lateral capsule. We know there's an injury there. That's a sure shot. We have to do something there to address mm-hmm. it. But what about if the MRI looks normal? You know, should we still be addressing that? And I don't know that we have fully uh, clarified that answer yet at this point.
0: Yeah, but good answer. Sometimes it's okay to say. <laughs> We don't know. Right. So, okay. So yeah. patient tears their ACL, you're going to, you're looking at the MR and are you looking at the health of the ALL on an MRI or you're waiting until you're in there?
1: So it's twofold. So I definitely look at the MRI and see if I can identify an avulsion of the ALL or an injury to the anterolateral capsule or a sagon fracture that wasn't appreciated on X-ray. Um, but mostly, I'm basing my decision as to whether or not I think that has been compromised in my physical exam. So, okay. for me to add in an extra articular lateral stabilization procedure, whether it be an ALL or an LET, I do LET. Um, some people do ALL. I think it's, I mean, studies have shown it's equivalent in terms of outcomes after either technique. I just do LET. Um, for me, deciding on who I'm adding that to, it depends on the physical exam. So, if they have a high grade pivot shift, if they have significant anterior laxity, so greater than five millimeters side to side difference, if they're high risk, so generalized ligamentous laxity with a Baynton score of greater than four, or genu recurvatum greater than ten degrees, or if I see on MRI an ALC injury, like those are the patients that I'm definitely doing an in, And there are other indications too, but they're more like patient specific. I would say on exam, those are the things that I'm looking for.
0: Okay. Um, they have a disruption of ALL or they have this increased laxity. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me how you approach an ALL disruption or I guess reconstruction or reinforcement.
1: What yeah, are your, so what are think- your options? Exactly. So I think there's two two main options um, that you can do. So you can do an ALL reconstruction, or you can do a lateral extraarticular tenodesis, an LET, iliotibial band tenodesis. It's also called because it uses the IT band. So you can do either one. And and at this point, there are a couple studies looking at both, and they found pretty equivalent. Outcomes. So for me, I just feel more comfortable with an LET. Um, the only difference, not the only difference, but the main difference between an ALL reconstruction and an LET is that an LET uses local graft, so the iliotibial band, while an ALL uses a free graft. So usually an allograft, like a semitendinosis allograft. You could harvest an autograft, but I don't think most people are doing that. So um, there's two fixation points for the ALL because you're taking a graft, you're attaching it to the distal femur and the proximal tibia, usually a Gertie's tubercle, versus the LET you're leaving it already attached at Gertie's where the IT band naturally attaches and you're just attaching it to the distal femur. So it's another reason I like L.E.T. It's only one fixation point to worry about versus two. So, um, I'm usually doing that L.E.T. Um, and I can talk a bit about how I do an L.E.T. a little later if you want me to, but, um, A.L.L. reconstruction I'm not usually doing cause I just like the locally available graft.
0: Okay. So you're usually going to L.E.T. And then mm-hmm. what, what you described is you, you keep a fixation point at Gertie's tubercle, mm-hmm. you you then what remove a proximal attachment and slide it over.
1: Essentially. Yes. So I take a strip, so I make about like a seven centimeter incision find the posterior edge of the iliotibial band, take a strip that's about a centimeter in width and about seven um, centimeters in length. I whip stitch the, um, I detach approximately, like you said, whip stitch about two centimeters, and then I shuttle it deep to the LCL um, from anterior to posterior, and then attach it uh, via an anchor, basically a suture staple technique, um, just posterior and proximal to the attachment of the LCL.
0: Okay. So it's like, you're, you're kind of putting like this seatbelt on the lateral knee just to give it more stability Mm -hmm. and decrease that rotation, um, around the tibia. That's really cool. I always wonder how the hell do you guys learn this? Like, when do you learn this? Is this like a, like a webinar?
1: Yeah. So it's so funny. This is something where I really think people need to be comfortable getting in a lab and teaching themselves new techniques, because this is something that's been shown in studies to really help patients, particularly high-risk patients. And it can't be, well, I didn't see it in fellowship, so I'm just never gonna do it, right? So for me, I saw enough multi-ligamentous reconstructions in fellowship that I felt comfortable along the lateral aspect of the knee. So I did a lab with my rep, um, and I basically just did the approach, harvested the piece, and, and did it, and I felt comfortable enough at that point doing it in the operating room. I mean, it's a lot of very similar surgical approaches to the lateral aspect to the knee and then using a very similar anchor that I use for like bank art repair and MPFL reconstruction. So I didn't feel too foreign, but I definitely, I practice any surgical technique that I'm doing for the first time in a lab setting to make sure that I work on all the kinks there.
0: And you do it. So you do it until you feel like you got it. When you approach that Mm -hmm. first patient, do you tell them, listen, I'm going to try something. It worked in a lab. I think Mm -hmm. it'll work on you. Or you just say, yeah, I've been doing this for a while.
1: I do tell people that L.E.T. in and of itself is an uncommon procedure at this point. I tell people how many I've done. So the first one I did tell them that I hadn't done one before, but it's showing really good outcomes. To me, it's a technically, I won't say easy, but of all the techniques you could add in, a simple procedure to add in that's been practiced. Um, and so I, I'm very upfront with people about that. But I also tell people that I don't think there's a lot of people around the country doing these five a day, right? They're not, it's not that common. I think if you're using the correct indications, you're not doing this every time you do an ACL. Um, so I think it is an uncommon procedure, at least for now. And so I think patients just have to be comfortable with that.
0: Okay. So give me a percentage. How often are you doing this?
1: So I would say at this point, you know, if you had asked me that when I first started, I would say maybe, 5% of my ACLs. Now, I think I'm appreciating more um, that hyperlaxity concern and those more high-grade pivot shifts. So like chronic ACLs, we know they have a higher grade pivot shift because they've led to all that compromise of the surrounding soft tissue with all those years without an ACL. Um, mm-hmm. So definitely appreciating that more. And I take care of a lot of female athletes and females tend to be more hyperlax. So I think I'm appreciating that more. Um, and I'm also giving patients the option. So we may talk about this in a little bit, but there are a couple studies that just came out looking at adding an LET to patients just because they participate in high-level cutting and pivoting. They didn't have laxity. They didn't have a high grade pivot. They didn't, yeah. all yeah. they did was is high level football uh, mm-hmm. and, and collegiate sports. And they had a significantly lower rate of re rupture after a primary ACL with the addition of LAT. So I started offering this to patients who are planning on playing in college and giving them the opportunity. I'm not pushing them one way or the other, but I'm saying, hey, this may lower your rate of re tear. It's an additional incision, it's longer surgery, it's more pain, but it may lower your risk. And some patients are going for it in that setting. So I would probably say maybe it's like, more like 10, 15% now, but it's still not 50, 50.
0: Well, um, how, what, what are some of the downsides y- you mentioned decision, yeah. maybe some lateral pain, although I don't see that a ton. Um, really? what, yeah, what else are, what else are you worried about? Um, and what prevents it from being the gold standard?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned lateral pain and I wonder if why you're seeing it less is because the change in the, like implants and the technique. So the old school way of doing this and I did it this way when I first started was to use a, a metal staple. Along the outside, and like I take care of a lot of females, like they're gonna feel that right through the skin. They already have a prominent, you know, a tight IT band that didn't help anyone. So now I do that suture staple, and I'm seeing less lateral pain, like you pointed out. So I think maybe we'll see that decline. Um, I definitely talk about you know more incisions and incisions to heal. Sometimes the brace can rub on that outside, you know, the lateral incision. So I warn people about that. Longer surgery, longer surgical time. Um, Now. In terms of quad strength, some studies have shown slower to regain quad strength. The stability study, which is the biggest randomized control study, looked at addition of LET to um, hamstring autograph and found that all the way up to six months, they had quad deficits compared to ACL alone, but it equalized at 12 months. So I tell people like you, you may lag behind the person next to you at rehab who's like doing a standard ACL, but you will get there. It just may take a little bit. I think I want to point out is people who talk about like risk of arthritis, uh, lateral compartment over constraint yeah. and risk of arthritis. There's a big, um, systematic review looking at this and found no, uh, increased risk of arthritis. Um, especially when I tension it, I do minimal tension and I hold them in 70 degrees per laprods study to make sure I don't over constrain. So that's not really a concern to me. I just make sure I try not to over tension them.
0: Yeah. Do, do you see, um, increased difficulty getting their full flexion back? or maybe even extension?
1: In the early phases, I do see some difficulty in progressing motion. I don't know if that's because of the slight increase in pain, because the additional incision and the work over there, or if that is more just because of the extra tightness, but I have not had a patient not get back their full motion. And I can say, and I'm going to knock on, what does I say this? I have not had an ACL patient go on to need a manipulation or a lysis, but I also work with fantastic BTs, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on this podcast. I make sure any ACL goes to a very established ACL physical therapist, that's going to work diligently on motion with them. Um, And so I think as long as they're in the right hands, I don't think that I worry about LET compromising, at least their long-term motion.
0: Does it? Do you instruct um, the therapist or change, I guess, the protocol for the patient? Does it change anything about their rehab process when you add this LET?
1: It doesn't. And in fact, I make a point to tell the therapist that because people see this new procedure and they're worried. I mean, no one wants to hurt something, break something, rip something that was just, you know, reconstructed or repaired. And I tell them that it's exactly the same as a regular ACL. My goal is 90 degrees by two weeks, 120 by four, full motion by six. And it doesn't change with an L.E.T. And if anything, I tell people they may have to push them a little
0: harder. Um, Those are great. Goals. Where did you get those? 90 by two. Say it again 90 Mm -hmm. by two weeks. 90
1: by two, 120 by four, and full by six. And I do let my patients in on a little bit that everyone hit, usually everyone hits 90 by two. That 120, that jump to 120 by four weeks is definitely challenging. But because I push them to get to 120, and I'm so on them, they usually hit around like 110, 115, and they're a little discouraged with themselves, but they're like pushing to get there. And then by the time I see them back at six, they're they're near full. And I always tell people that the quicker you can get back motion, the better you're going to feel, the easier your recovery is going to be. Once that stiffness starts to set in, that lack of extension or that lack of flexion, I really worry about it holding back recovery of quad strength and all the other things that I want to be a part of your rehab.
0: Yeah. Um, do you see people usually struggling with extension more than flexion? Let's say specifically with ALL. Do you notice yeah. a difference?
1: I haven't. Um, but then again, you know, I'm curious to see what you think. Cause you take care of a, a lot of patients with, with sports injuries and ACL. Like if you, I use a brace still after ACL reconstruction. And I know there's lots of studies coming out that say you don't need them. You don't Why need you it. Use I know. A brace i still, because honestly, that exact reason. So I have them sleep in a brace, locked out fully wait, wait, straight. Oh, okay,
0: okay. so you're mm-hmm. saying, uh, what, like a blood so coming out?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. they have okay. a blood so coming out of the surgery, and oh. I do it for six weeks. But there's, like, many, many studies that are showing you don't need to brace ACL yeah. patients after surgery. But for me, like, I worry about that extension, and I just feel comfortable keeping them locked out straight at nighttime and then unlocked during the day for them to move. And so here's,
0: I think yeah. that helps. I mean, here, here's what do you my, think? counterpoint to that, which is when they're in that blood. So like any, um, adhesions or arthrofibrosis that I've seen, they're not missing 20 degrees of knee extension, Mm -hmm. right? Like they're missing their last five or three. If you see your patients in that blood, so they're sitting at three to five, like if it's going to freeze that blood, so ain't helping would be my counterpoint.
1: I, I completely agree with you because I've actually said that to people. I'll watch them put it on. They'll put their leg on the table, bend it to five degrees and then put the brace yeah, on and pull that's extension. And I'm like, that's, that's not doing anything. So I, t- I show them, you gotta put it on. You gotta get the leg straight, put it on. And even then, then you can apply like a hyper extension to get it yeah. a little bit more. But I tell, that's why I say to people, you got to go to physical therapy immediately after surgery because, as you pointed out, a brace isn't going to get you there. CPM isn't going to get you there. Yeah. Nothing's going to get you there. and someone putting their hands on you and stretching you into full extension and working on your flexion.
0: Yeah. I've noticed. Oh, I think you're right. Thanks for that, that plug uh, for PTs. Do you, how quickly do you send them in for rehab?
1: So I see all of my patients on post step day three. Though it's interesting, I was chatting with one of my colleagues. She sees them the day after. Um, But I just see, I operate on Tuesdays. I see them on Friday. um, And I have them start their PT as soon as we do a dressing change on Friday. So I make sure that they have a PT already identified before surgery. Once their surgical date is booked, they book their first PT visit for after that. I want to see them, check the incisions, drain the knee if I have to, put a lighter dressing on, and then I get
0: them into PT that day. You'll drain the knee that Friday
1: if they need it so if they have a large um you know hemerthrosis then i will drain it to decrease some of that tense effusion and allow them to make more progress with motion if they don't need to i don't i don't love sticking a needle into a sterile knee that i just operated on but if it's gonna really like hold back their quad recovery and their ability to flex then i will drain them
0: where did you get that that's that's an awesome idea where would that come from
1: that came from a very experienced PA in my practice. So when I first joined my practice, I was um, given, uh, I guess I borrowed this PA who's been in practice for 20 years. Her name is Diane. So I'll make sure she listens to this episode. Thank and she—and it was great because um, when I first started, you know, you're still figuring things out. Like you're fresh out of fellowship. You know all the data, but like truly Practic practicality, like in the operating room, having her be there was really helpful for me. And um, first post op, she was like, "Oh yeah, I drain every single ACL," and I was like, "I had never seen that before." First couple, I was hesitant to because you know I was worried about they just had surgery this and that. And then I started, and I just saw a quicker recovery of motion, and patients are just they feel better. They just, they had less pain, less inhibition. Um, and so now I do it again, if I feel they need it, if it's a mild effusion, then I just will ice and tell them to ice and leave it alone. But if it's a good size effusion, I will drain them.
0: Do you have any idea what percentage of your, um, ACL reconstructions require a subsequent scope because of motion or arthrofibrosis?
1: So in my pop, me personally, zero i does that mean? You've I've,
0: never done a scope?
1: A, a lysis of adhesions and manipulation yeah. after an ACL? No. I've had to do one in um, my entire practice thus far, and it was because of a patella tendon repair, and he went on to arthrofibrosis, and I lysed him. I do tibial tubercle osteotomies, MPFL reconstructions, and ACLs, and I haven't had to. But again, I'm so for me, when I hear patients have gotten stiff, and I ask them how frequently they saw their surgeon, and they said, well, he said to come back in four weeks. I, that's not. If someone's stiff, I'm seeing them weekly to make sure that their motion is coming back. I'm calling their physical therapist. I'm upping their PT visits to four times a week. I don't care if they run out on the back end; we'll address that then. But for me, getting back motion is the most vital thing. So I, I think it's because I'm so I stalk my patients to make sure that they that they are doing what they're supposed to do. I think that's that's why I haven't
0: if seen you that. didn't graduate top in your class and then go to Harvard, I would have said you should have been a PT because like that, that obsession is essential. That is a crazy mm-hmm. statistic doc that you've done one. Um, that's really amazing. It makes me want to talk to the surgeons that refer us patients to consider. I think that draining idea is mm-hmm. fascinating because that big swollen, angry knee just keeps mm-hmm. it slightly flexed and then you're dead. Exactly. So, exactly. so maybe it's that. What other interventions are you doing like when you start stalking them to prevent yeah. it from adhesion?
1: So it's all, I think setting the goals has been really helpful, making it clear what I want them to hit, um, making sure they have PT set up in advance. I think even if they delay like a week, it starts to set in, like you were saying, um, definitely keeping a close eye on them and doing the drainage if necessary. I've drained people sometimes the second post-op visit, they start PT and they get swollen because they're doing more. I'll, yeah. I'll drain them yeah. then. Um, and then I do a, I'm sure you've seen this, that you do this a lot. I do a cryocuff. In all of my ACL patients and I put it underneath the dressing and I run it continuously for the 24 hours every 24 hours for the three days and then afterwards I have them ice numerous times so I you know I make sure that they are you know doing all these different approaches to make sure that they have you know the best chance of limiting their stiffness
0: well it sounds like they have they have a really good chance what um what is your tourniquet time on the average ACL? And then how different is it with the, um, LET?
1: Yeah. So for me, I, by about the way, is this like practice, asking uh, how
0: much, how much money you make? I, I don't know if this is like yeah. over the line, but
1: you know, I think it's, it's so funny because when we do our board collection, they make us say how long our tourniquet time is, which is almost like a you're going to get in trouble if it's too long. So, you know, for me, obviously, you want to try to keep tourniquet time as low as possible. I started um, doing my graft harvest without tourniquet because I felt like I didn't really need it. When I really need it is when I'm drilling the tunnels in the knee, and I want to make sure that I have great visualization for what I'm doing intra articularly. So, for me, I don't inflate until after I harvest the graft, the graft is being prepared, I close everything up, then I go up with the tourniquet, and then I go into the knee and I start doing my intraarticular work. And that gives me plenty of tourniquet time in case I need to do a meniscus repair or a root repair or a lot of other work that way I'm not running out of tourniquet. Um, and so I would say with that change, I would say it's about an hour for the intra-articular work and all that for a standard ACL. Um, adding an LET, so sometimes I'll go up, And then I'll come back down with it um, just because I don't want to run out of tourniquet time in terms of placing my graft and making sure I can get my interference screws in and have great visualization. And again, I don't feel like I need the tourniquet for the lateral approach because it's a pretty clean plane. It's not particularly bloody. So oftentimes I will deflate, do the lateral approach, and then go back in um, and reinflate the tourniquet so I can see.
0: And so that tax on how much of tourniquet time when you reinflate it?
1: When I reinflate, you know, it's probably about maybe like 15, 20 more minutes because you have to clean out all the blood that has inevitably yep. like gone into the knee and things like that. But, you know, in terms of adding an LAT to an ACL, I'm sure that there's a million ways of doing it, but I have a specific order in how I do it because for me, your lateral, your tunnel, you're drilling your ACL is lateral femoral condyle. I am just petrified of hitting my ACL. So I will drill, I'll harvest the graft. I drill my tunnels for ACL, and then I come out and I place the anchor for the LET, and then I place the ACL graft, and then I secure the L-E-T. And the reason why is the last thing I want is to be drilling for my anchor for L-E-T and go right into my ACL graft because my angle is off. And people say, oh, you just aim proximal and anterior and you're going to miss it. I'm not chancing that. So I just, I go out, I place my anchor, I go back in, I place my graft because it's the most precious part. And then I go back out and I secure the L-E-T once I know the ACL is safely in place.
0: You learned that in the lab? Like, does that come along with your lab work? When do you figure that out?
1: So I just knew drilling in that area. I was worried. So I kind of learned tunnel management with doing like um, a, a poster, lateral corner and an ACL together. And you worry about those tunnels being near mm-hmm. each other. So when I first planned my first LET, I knew that I would be worried about that. And I drilled my anchor and I watched in the tunnel as I was drilling and it went right through the ACL tunnel. Now it didn't end up, compromising. When the anchor pulled back, it was fine. But once I saw that, I was like, every time I'm going to drill this, make sure it's set. Just for me, I think something training has always taught me is that things can go wrong at any point, the best laid plan. So anything you can do to minimize a hiccup, I think is beneficial. Even if it adds on 10, 15 more minutes, like I think it's beneficial just to prevent that hiccup and that issue down the line.
0: So... uh the reason I love having these conversations with surgeons is because too often we don't know what goes on once that patient goes to sleep, right? And and yeah. so it's interesting to hear about different techniques and the whip stitch and and all this stuff, right? But mm-hmm. other the other things that you are mentioning factor in so heavily to what they look like post, and also makes me think, you know, maybe I used to see um, LETs get so damn stiff specifically into flexion because of a lot of what you're mentioning, right? Like all of these nuances of, you know, was something hit? Was something nicked? Was, is that going to incite increased inflammation? Where exactly are they? You know, are they leaving it on Mm -hmm. Gurney's tubercle? What is there? All of that really makes um, such a difference in, I think, outcomes. And then that's what leads to us saying, you got to see Bassett. You got to go. I don't know why, but but the knees <laughs> are better, right? But it, but it's hearing these nuances that is probably why. A big thing is that tourniquet time. Us as PTs, mm-hmm. let me rephrase that. I didn't think about that. Uh, it's just it just wasn't on my radar. Like, why is this doctor's knees getting straight and quads are turning on, and this mm-hmm. doctor's aren't? So much yeah. of that could be tourniquet time, as an example.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so that's
0: that's that's really interesting. Um why do you think the LETs have poor quadriceps strength at 6 months?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I was wondering that when I was reading that paper and the only thing I could think of was pain because I know that pain can lead to quad inhibition. And I tell people that all the time, you have an injury, you fall on your knee, and you basically have some anterior knee pain, then it can lead to some quad shutdown. And all of a sudden, then you're having this functional instability because your quad isn't strong and then it's like a vicious cycle. So that's what I was thinking. I mean, the graph they used was hamstring. So nowhere near the quad, nowhere yeah. near the extension mechanism. Yeah. They didn't even use BTB. So it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to me that the quad would be so impacted other than perhaps pain because I don't think the IT band contributes very much to that. And they only took a, a strip of it and they only closed approximately. They didn't close it distally. So it's not like the IT band got overly tight. So yep. I, I, the only explanation I could think of was that it correlated with pain, perhaps. No,
0: it's got to be tourniquet time. It's yeah, got to oh, tourniquet think. time. Okay. I, you <clears throat> know, and they don't... didn't
1: report that. That's really interesting. They didn't report like use of the tourniquet or how much tourniquet time between the ACL alone and ACL LED, at least to my knowledge. I'll check the paper.
0: So I think that would be interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you recommend electric stim, a home electric stim unit to your patients pre-op and then, you know, in preparation for post-op care?
1: So pre-op, I don't, but I do have all of my ACLs undergo prehab, even if they look good, just to make sure that there is no quad deficiency and make sure that their motion is full. I essentially joke with my patients that I'm going to make your knee feel like you don't need surgery. You're going to have full motion, no pain, no effusion, and excellent strength. And then I'm going to operate on you and set you way back because what you, what you go into surgery with is is predictive of what you're gonna come out of surgery with. Um, More important to me than STEM, although STEM is definitely an important modality, is um, BFR. So I really love blood flow restriction therapy. So I have people do it pre-op, not only to help wake up the quad under less strain on an already inflamed knee, but also to teach them what it's like so they know what to expect post-operatively. And I start BFR two weeks after surgery once I confirm the incisions look like they're okay. And I continue it up until about 12 weeks or more if they are doing well with it. So that's something that's really important to me with regards to the ACL rehab. I mean, STEM definitely, I think has a role, um, especially with waking up that initial quad. I think BFR is really like the future.
0: Okay. So uh, it's the, it's the present. So
1: the present exactly.
0: Um, what about this? What if you had your patients order a home stim unit pre-op so that when they wake up from the damage you just did to their knee, (laughs) they can put those pads on their quads immediately and learn how to wake up their quad. If it's tourniquet time and it's quad recruitment and those are, Tourniquet time is higher. Quad recruitment is worse. Coming out of an L.E.T. Send them home with a STEM unit. Tell me why you wouldn't.
1: No, I think that's great. I think we definitely have to... I always am very conscious of costs and what insurances will cover. So for instance, like you heard me mention CPM, if insurance will cover it, I think it's a great thing. People don't want to do very much. The first three days after surgery, they throw their leg in there. So if stim will be covered or if it's not too cost prohibitive, I think that's excellent. I think anything patients can do to be active while recovering at home without, within the bounds of their recovery, I think that's really important and that's definitely really helpful. Um, I'd be curious, do you know, do you see a difference if you get this information from the surgeon in terms of quad recovery and waking back up the quad based on the type of block that the patient has. Um,
0: Okay. So no, we don't get enough of the information, Mm -hmm. but that's why I love having you guys on also. It sounds like you host your own pod, the way you ask me questions.
1: <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, that's okay. I <laughs> feel like it, so, it's a habit. It just flies out of my mouth. <laughs> no, that's great.
0: So, okay, so give us the options of what you consider with the blocks um, and yeah. what you've seen most success with.
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting. I'm going to start off by saying that our recent systematic review that came out, interestingly, found no difference in outcomes um, based on what block was used. But I call BS. I don't know if I can curse on this podcast. I'll just say I call BS. (laughs) So I, uh, you know, I just I don't believe it that if you do a femoral nerve block and literally shut down the nerve that innervates the quad versus doing an adductor canal block and just shutting down the saphenous or the sensory, but leaving the motor intact, I do not believe that they're going to have the same recovery of their quad afterwards. I've seen patients for a second opinion that have had prolonged quad shutdown after femoral nerve blocks, so I won't do them. I will do for my um, ACLs, I do an adductor canal or a saphenous block, which is essentially the, the sensory nerve for the femoral nerve. And mm-hmm. then I do an IPAC, which is the, I'm going to blank on exactly what it is, but it's, it's uh, something posterior adjacent capsule of the knee. It's basically, it is it, a block that goes to that. the posterior okay. aspect of the knee to um, numb up the capsule there. And that's really mm-hmm. helpful. And that can avoid the popliteal block. So I, I think they're both really good in terms of pain control. And then I don't worry about the quad getting shut down as much, just my opinion.
0: Um, so I think that's awesome. And I think that's that's just another thing to consider um when we're sending out but also hopefully all the orthopedists that are listening to this thing now start to consider other options so <clears throat> now you have tourniquet time you have um what nerve block you're using right now mm-hmm. maybe you're getting a stim unit by the way a good stim unit is 250 bucks for home use but insurance usually covers it i think that's really important that's um, you mentioned so we we have all of our patients order them Pre-op because it takes a little bit, just so they have it. We teach them how to use it, so they're doing it appropriately. So when they come in, they already understand how to use the quad. Um, hopefully, um, another thing is BFR. Now BFR is getting a lot more affordable, so they have units that are you're able to get at home. You're able to find a good one mm-hmm. for about two fifty to four hundred bucks. So you could do that. Um, so there's there's just so much to do to make sure that before they walk in for visit one. That they're on the road. Um, you mentioned the the cold cuff. I love mm-hmm. the Proventus unit, also covered by insurance, um, that provides compression. What I love about it is it'll cycle through both hot and cold, um, mm. so you can get you can get uh, back and forth so that your body doesn't acclimate to the cold. I love that, and it doesn't get too cold the way a game ready does, um, but it, it will stay in the therapeutic. So you can sleep in it. It's pretty. It's pretty awesome. Um, that's awesome. I'll send you some information on that, but yeah, let me ask you this. What's wrong with BFR. If it's, if your wound is not closed, are you telling me that it increases infection rates or decreases healing time doc?
1: So it's so funny. That's just one of those things that's on there. Like, you know, if someone is morbidly obese, if someone has a history of vascular disorders, if someone has a history of blood clots, you know, all this, uh, you know, an interesting one also not to go off on a tangent, but as skeletally immature people. You know, like pediatrics. There's no data saying it's it's bad, but there's no data saying it's safe either. So people are very hesitant. A lot of my patients are 14, 15 years old undergoing yep, an ACL. Sure. So we just we don't know. I think the thought is by decreasing blood supply to the area, you could potentially further compromise wound healing, potentially in a patient that may already be predisposed to having wound healing issues because they're showing that they're slow to heal.
0: Yep. Thankfully,
1: I I haven't had that often. When I'm operating on an ACL patient, they tend to be young, healthy, pe- you know, people, so yep. they tend to heal up well. I use all absorbable sutures and skin glue, so I haven't really had that issue. Um, but if I guess if I was looking at a wound that was just you know dehissing and had a concern for an infection, perhaps yeah. I would hold off on the BFR to fair. you know maximize function. That's infection. fair.
0: That's fair. Yeah. Here's what I always joke about, like. Um, I used to have surgeons tell me like, you know, don't, don't be so aggressive getting the patient towards extension or towards flexion. And in my head, I'm like, you, before they woke up, you ripped them into extension and ripped them (laughs) into flexion. Like, (laughs) they'll be fine. But I would say the same Mm -hmm. thing with a tourniquet, right? You better believe Mm -hmm. they're getting better blood flow with a BFR machine than with the tourniquet you just left on their leg for an hour.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So, absolutely. I mean, and also, that's it. And that's why I tell people too is that BFR does not occlude all blood flow. It includes roughly 80% of blood flow. You're still getting arterial flow, it's occluding venous outflow, building up the hypoxic environment. So, you're not, people think, oh my gosh, I'm completely depriving blood flow. No, that's what we do in surgery.
0: Exactly. (laughs) It's not what's
1: being done in the PT setting.
0: So, yeah, it's,
1: it's different. Yeah.
0: Which is why maybe you'll think about letting them do it. In the first two weeks?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny if some, if one of my PTs said to me, Hey, I really want to get this started in three days, I would have absolutely no problem with it. I think it's just like, we've come up with a protocol. So we've stuck with the two weeks. And also I've had PTs tell me this, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this, that I'll say, are you using BFR? And they say, well, we're working on the motion first. Like they don't even have beyond 45 degrees of flexion yet. And I go, yeah. Oh, okay. And in my mind, I'm like, I guess you can't do BFR if you don't have good enough motion. Like I would think you could still do straight leg raising and stuff, but it seems that if they're not hitting their motion goals or that first few days where they can barely bend to 35 degrees, cause they're so inflamed then maybe BFR isn't as useful, but what are your thoughts on that? Do you still okay. use it in the early phases?
0: Great question. You need your own podcast. <laughs> um, the, I, think it's, I think it's all a matter of, I think it's all a matter of timing. So how much time do you have with the patient one-on-one? Yeah. Um, To make a difference. And so, if you think your time is better used on motion, Mm -hmm. then okay, you're gonna skip BFR. I would argue the person who's gonna have the biggest effect on their motion is the patient. You think you're making gains in 45 minutes three times a week, four times? No, you're making gains in prone hangs, you're making gains with heel slides all day Mm -hmm. at home while they're watching Netflix. When they come in, Mm -hmm. their motion should start looking pretty good. That's when, you know, BFR, if they don't have one at home, then you're spending time on it. So that's point one. Like Mm -hmm. most of the motion gains is education, not me cranking on your knee. So that's Mm -hmm. one. Two is early stages. It's not about regaining strength. It's about preventing atrophy. So just putting the tourniquet on, pumping it up, forget lifting their leg. We know that that is systemically going to release human growth hormone and prevent, or at least slow atrophy. So tell your therapist, number one, to buy our course, but number two, (laughs) to think about like, you got to prevent atrophy. It's not about hypertrophy in this early stage. Teach them how to do their motion at home, prevent their um, atrophy in the clinic is what I would say.
1: And I think you really hit a good point there talking about just the effects of that hypoxic environment for systemic, right? I mean, when we do proximal, uh, you know, BFR for proximal benefits for the rotator cuff, it's it's proximal. You're not depriving any blood flow to the rotator cuff. It's this way. So you, you know, by doing that, you are creating, as you said, all these growth factors, all these hormone levels that are going up. And that is working that area and causing the changes that we're seeing. And there was a study that showed that. And, and I think that really keys in with just putting it on and having them do the simplest of exercises, yeah. I think would still be beneficial system, you know, systemically.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, I I totally agree with that. Um, you know, I see the Eagles football over your left shoulder. What a lot (laughs) of the NFL teams are doing is they're starting to use BFR for recovery. And so Mm. it's similar to what you're talking about, where they'll, um, they're asking their body to respond, um, chemically to the pressure, Mm -hmm. it's not about the load. And so a lot of the football teams will take BFRs bilateral cuffs onto the flights because they're using it for recovery and they're simply getting the pump and holding all of that blood in their lower extremities to allow those healing factors to kick in. It's not about the load necessarily. So Mm -hmm. there's plenty more to, to be gained there. Um, Doc, I love your understanding of BFR. That is (laughs) high level. It's awesome.
1: Thank you. I gave a talk about it at a sports symposium. So I did have to educate myself a fair amount on it. And then I, I know you've you've referenced I Need My Own Podcast. I have my own podcast. So we talk about BFR a lot on it, actually. We talk a lot about modalities on there. Um, my co-host actually used to be a physical therapist for seven years and then be, went to residency and that's where we met each other. So she cares very much about that. So we talk a lot about um, BFR on our show.
0: Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah. That is awesome. Um, okay. I've already learned a ton. Let's, um, mm-hmm. I want to throw a little bit more of a general question at you. Cause I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. interested in your take. What do you think PTs screw up the most as it pertains to ACL rehab?
1: So we kind of just talked a little bit about this and you said it's more home and education and things like that, but it's, It's the motion. So when I tell people those motion goals, I'm telling the patients, but I'm also telling the therapists. And thankfully, as I said at the start of this, I have the benefit of working with some really excellent physical therapists. And I make sure that I plug my patients in with people that are experienced with ACL recovery, but that's not always possible. My Mm -hmm. patients sometimes live in an area where there's one physical therapist and the entirety of that that county, right? And so they they have to go there. And that PT is very good, but maybe they deal with a lot of general conditions and they don't do ACLs all day, every day. And so the biggest concern I've seen is not being aggressive enough with early flexion and early extension, specifically the latter. You know, hey, yeah, it's a negative one, negative two. It's straight enough. It looks good. It's not. They're going to walk with a limp. They're going to have quad inhibition. It's going to lead to all of these problems. Um, I just saw a patient, she's I didn't do her surgery, but she's 10 months out from an ACL, came in for a second opinion for diffuse pain. She lacks five degrees of full extension. What are we going to do at this point with that, right? I mean, she's so far out. We'll do some therapy and try to get her there, but she's missed the boat. So I think that's the biggest concern I have. And that's why I communicate with my PTs. If I see a concern, I call them and I speak to them about it because I want them to be aggressive with motion. They're not going to hurt anything by being aggressive with motion that I did in the OR. And so that's the biggest, that's the key point.
0: Okay, um, so if that's what you kind of wish PTs were a little bit better at, what do you wish surgeons were better at as it pertains to ACL and and maybe even specifically with LETs?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think it's twofold. So I think the first thing is that LET or ALL reconstruction is not a magic wand, right? I think as these new procedures come out, we get really excited to just like stick them on everything and be like, it's going to give me added security. But you can't forget the core of ACL reconstruction, right? Tunnel placement is the number one uh, leading risk factor for ACL graft failure. You put them in the wrong place, you're going to fail. Not recognizing meniscus tears, other ligament tears, graft choice. You can't do an allograft in a 15-year-old and stick an LET on there and think they're going to do great, right? We know allografts have a higher failure rate in that age population. So I think still doing the right things with your standard ACL um, is important um, also when adding an LAT. And then the second thing is that I think people are fearful to start this procedure. They haven't seen it before. They didn't learn it in their training and they're nervous to do it. And I would encourage them to go do a lab. It's not that hard. And I think that people can do it. And I think it's something that's really going to change the trajectory of outcomes for ACL, especially in our high-risk population. You probably see it too. The incidence of ACL, is rising in young individuals. They are already at high risk for a re-tear and that sets them up for long-term knee issues. I think if we can protect these people with an LET or an ALL reconstruction, I think we should.
0: Yeah, Um, I think that that's really well said. Um, I had this conversation um, with uh, another NFL doc um, and we were talking about the success rates as measured Mm -hmm. by return to previous level of function or competition specifically in the NFL. It mm-hmm. is staggering how poor it is. It's unbelievable. It really is. It's fifty. I think it's like 50%. Yeah. So if it's sitting at 50%, what are we doing as a medical community to try to improve that? And I, I think at least conceptually, I don't know that there's enough data. There's, I know there's not enough data in the NFL yet, but conceptually this should nudge that statistic closer to a hundred percent. And so it's like, having the ability to do that and also having the leverage to do that, right? Like who's going to be the first to put an L E T into the Ravens starting linebacker. Yeah. You know, it's so much involved.
1: Exactly. When you take that first step and, and that's really important what you just highlighted there, that what do we call success? Is it lack of the ACL graft rupturing, which That is a main reason to do an L-E-T or an A-L-L reconstruction. Studies have shown significantly lowers the rate of graft failure. But another thing studies have shown is it significantly increases the rate of return to pre-injury level of play and high-level competition. So it's exactly what you're saying, that just them getting back on the field is not a win if they – kick the ball around for five minutes that have to come off and they're not yep. playing at the level they were playing at. I mean, yeah, you've given them a somewhat functional need, but you've not restored them back to the level they were. And I think yeah. that's really important.
0: Okay. So you said it's, it's steadily and slowly rising, um, mm-hmm. your rate of, of doing an L E T you just highlighted. It decreases, uh, re-rupture rate. Mm-hmm. It increases the chances they return to previous level of function. This has to be the future of primary repairs, doesn't it?
1: I really think it is. And it just, it's, um, I was on a panel with, uh, talking about LET L- and thankfully I did not get put on the spot with this question, but one of the guys, they were like, so who are you doing this in? Who are you not doing this in? And it was mm-hmm. like, well, you know, like, no, 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 You got to give an answer. Yeah. Who are you not doing this in given that it's protecting against all this and everyone's hemming and hawing because no one wants to come right out and say, I'm going to do it in everyone because it's going to lower the, the rates. Because every study that has come out on LET, not everyone, there's one that it showed no difference, but only because of statistical significance. It's still trended to a lower mm-hmm. failure rate, but almost every study has shown a lower rate of failure and improved return to pre injury level of play. So that's a very good question. Why are we not doing it in everyone? And I think if we fast forward five years, we're going to see a lot more quad autograph, and pretty much everyone's going to be getting an LET, you know, okay. based on this data.
0: Okay, so that's fascinating because it it was gonna be my next question of what you see the future is. You said Mm -hmm. quad tendon, you said L-E-T. You didn't say ACL repairs.
1: Oh, well, that was a misspeak on my part. So we definitely should talk about ACL repairs. Okay, (laughs) tell me what you got. Yeah, so I do think that is the future, but I think it's important in terms of identifying what can and can't be repaired. So, you know, back in the day, the ACL repair, failure rate was like over 50%. Like they all failed um, and they all went on to have persistent instability and pain, but that's because I don't think we understood why repairs were failing. So I mentioned where I did my training, um, I trained with Martha Murray up in Boston at Boston Children's Hospital and she developed the um, ACL bear implant. And so you may be familiar with it for your listeners that aren't, it stands for bridge enhanced ACL repair. And essentially the goal of this implant was to protect the clot that forms at the site of the ACL, in terms of allowing for healing, so they use the example of like when an MCL tears, it forms a clot. That clot serves as a scaffold through which you know ligament grows and reattaches. That doesn't happen with an ACL. The synovial fluid has you know uh, these these enzymes that break down the clot and inhibit healing. It's kind of our body's defense mechanism. So this scaffold protects that clot, and you can infiltrate the clot with whole blood to kind of give it added growth factors. And so that really has changed the game. But you still need a good amount of tissue to put the suture in, pass it through the implant and then reattach it. So you need at least, I believe a tibial sum of about 50% still remaining. Um, but you make that, that call at the time of surgery. So you you get in there, you look, it has to be a good substance tissue. It can't be significantly frayed and it has to be enough that you can put suture in to put it through the implant and then, and then reattach it. So I really do think, as you pointed out, I really do think that is the future as well too. Um, very exciting data coming out about that.
0: Yeah. So, um, so I got the, I had the opportunity to watch Baltimore based surgeons in a lab learning how to place the bear, um, mm-hmm. and, and how to set that up. It, it kind of looks like a marshmallow to me, it does. That, yeah. right? That you like stuff in the knee. Can you just do a better job of describing that for our listeners of what it actually looks like and, and what the procedure mm-hmm. is?
1: Yeah, so it's about, I mean, you kind of put it perfectly. It's like a more skinny marshmallow um, that essentially you uh, you kind of infiltrate with the patient's blood and you kind of make it this like mess of tissue and you've already put the sutures through it and you basically put it through a portal and try to position it between the ACL ligament that you are repairing and the lateral femoral condyle wall um, basically to protect that scaffold to allow it to heal in.
0: And, and so tell me so you said, the data is very promising. Tell me what they're seeing and where you see it going to. Yeah.
1: So I think the, biggest, the the main part of the first phase of studies was to show that it was not inferior to ACL reconstruction. And so their study did show that it was not inferior to ACL reconstruction in terms of failure rate and things like that. They did find a higher failure rate just in general compared across their patient population with younger patients, but they make a really important note that younger patients in general are going to have a higher failure rate regardless of what you do. Um, And ACL reconstruction is going to have a higher failure rate because those patients are getting back to super high level of sports, they're putting more stress through their knee, um, and they still have some of the risk factors that predispose them for an ACL tear in the first place. Um, the other thing that we saw and um, uh, that I've seen in some of these studies is one, greater return of um, hamstring strength. So greater return of muscle strength because you're not taking a graft, right? So you're not robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're not compromising, you know, creating that donor site morbidity, whether it be you're taking a patellar tendon with kneeling pain and anterior knee pain, patellofemoral pain or hamstring weakness if you're taking a hamstring graft. And then interestingly, I, you know, I we talk a lot about on, on our podcast, the psychology of recovery recovery and how fear of re-injury can hold people back and they found that psychologically using the ACL RSI score that there was um, a significantly uh, lower rate or in terms of uh, feeling prepared to return to sport people felt psychologically more ready to return to sport at six months after a repair compared to a reconstruction so they just they feel better they have their native ACL they feel better they recover quicker so it's really exciting and I'm excited to see more long-term data in terms of where this is going
0: yeah okay so Um, briefly give me an overview of your graph choices
1: now for autograph again, if you had asked me at the start of my career, I would say almost entirely BTB, um, with hamstrings as needed for skeletally immature patients. I don't do hamstrings anymore. So if I have a skeletally immature patient or a revision, I'm doing quad tendon. If Mm -hmm. someone is over the age of, let's say 25, um, so they can't Mm -hmm. have an allograft, they're active. I will recommend quad. I think it's an easier recovery, and I think the data is very clear. It's a very good graft. Um, But for my teens, I'm still doing BTV. I still really like the robust um, bone-to-bone healing that I get from patellar tendon. Um, I moved away from hamstring just because um, I take care of a lot of female athletes, Mm -hmm. and I really do believe the literature that has come out suggesting that females have a higher rate of failure after hamstring ACL. Um, And I also don't like the idea of compromising the hamstrings in a population that is already quad dominant, which can lead to ACL risk you know a failure so I, I don't do hamstring asLs pretty much across the board at this point so you can find us in terms of my podcast on Instagram at the sports docs pod um, or on uh, Twitter X whatever it's called now at the sports doc pod so that's where we are um, in terms of me um, you can reach me you can email me if you want to reach me my email is just my first name last name MD so Ashley bassett MD at gmail.com um, feel free to email me with any questions um, and then I'm also on Instagram Twitter, Um, I'm Sporty Surgeon on Instagram, and on Twitter, I'm just Ashley Bassett MD, so feel free to reach me on, on any of those avenues.